You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Thanks, Jacob, for the Friday rave. It's Friday the 26th of June. Made it to another Friday. You and I have had a bit of discussion this week, and and we've been talking about our show because I was listening to it last Friday and I had some friends around. And it's Friday, 5.30 in the evening, end of the week. I don't know too many people that go to an economics lecture <laughs> at 5.30 on a Friday evening. I would. <laughs> you, you would. That's Yeah, I get that. But I think the information is fantastic. Okay? I've got no problems with the content. It is jam-packed full of incredibly interesting information, which everybody in the world needs to know. I get that. Okay? But there's a but coming on. But 5.30 on a Friday, <laughs> 5.30 on a Friday evening? I reckon that's a bit of a hard slog. You just secretly want to be a DJ on it. No. I'm, <laughs> my, my routine on a Friday evening is to listen to some music, have a couple of beers. If there's some, something interesting going on, terrific. But I don't want to go to a bloody economics lecture. Oh, he's a frustrated DJ. That's all there is to it. <laughs> anyway, you and I had a discussion about this week, and we agreed that you're going to look after the podcasts with all the hard information. Yes. That's not hard. It's, it's exciting and interesting and fascinating. Hard, beautiful, essential, <laughs> required information that everybody needs to know. Easy. Easy listening information. It's not that easy because everybody we've heard to, myself and yourself included, we need to listen to it a couple of times over. I know. I have to listen to my own podcast three times to understand it. And that's the beauty of a podcast. You can. But anybody who's listening to the radio live right now, they're not sitting here taking notes and wanting to turn over things two or three times. They just no, they might run off the road, <laughs> mightn't they? <laughs> they might fall asleep and crash into a pole. Um, that's terrible. So we're going to have less of that intense lecture for the live show, but it's going to be available on the podcast. Like the full lecture is available on podcast. So that's the new format of the show. And on that basis, I'm going to throw to a song. That's another great local band called Parsnip with their song called Rip It Off. I was put on to Parsnip by my mate Nortz who plays in the footy team with them, the Bats, the Mighty Bats. So they play music and they play footy. Now, normally we'd start the show by saying, what are we talking about this weekend? So what are we talking about? What's the agenda for this week? The monetary system that you and I are living in, Kevin, we'd have already talked about how the government issues currency. And yet, even though you have that power of the purse, you can still wear handcuffs, <laughs> which is what the Australian and the US governments and other governments after the war, essentially, did. And why were they doing that? Well, that was to do with the monetary system. So we got George Pantelopoulos, who is a PhD student in economics, and he explained to us all about the monetary system. We're going back to the fixed exchange system. So we're having a look at the fixed exchange system of currency compared to the floating uh, system that we currently have. This is pre-1983 and post-1983, because we're going to go into some detail about the fixed exchange rate. And I asked you this question, I go, why are we going into so much detail and what's the point? The reason why we need to talk about this, Kevin, is because I feel like what we have here is a case of what I call free-range eggs. What do you mean by free-range eggs, Anne? Oh, well, since you asked, Kevin, have you ever heard this thing about the chickens? So you've got this farmer and he's got all these chickens. And they're all in a barn and they're all in cages and they're called cage chickens. And then the animal activists get in there and they say, we want free range chickens. So the farmer lets his chickens out of their cages. So now they're all running around on the floor of this barn. And this barn has a big door in it with all the light streaming through. And outside the door, there's this lovely patch of grass that the chickens could go and frolic in. And so what do you think the chickens do? Well, I reckon they, they head outside, Yeah. Nope, they all stay in the barn. But because the door's open, they're allowed to market those eggs as free-range. So you can go to the supermarket and you can buy free-range eggs and you can know that at least the door of the barn was open. But because chickens need to learn what to do, and no one's taught them what to do, so they all still think they're in their cages. The people in power are acting like they're still in cages. They're acting like they're still in this fixed exchange rate when, in fact, the door's wide open. I like your analogy. That actually is pretty good. We're too scared to go outside. 
But look, that, that's great. But um, shall we have a listen to our guest this week, George, who can start giving us a description of the fixed exchange rate system that we came from and how it affects the mindset of uh, economists and politicians uh, and journalists um, uh, of today? I'm really pleased today that we get to speak with George Pantelopoulos, a PhD candidate under the supervision of Professor Martin Watts, who we've had a chance to speak with as well. And I understand, George, you're very busy uh, up there in Newcastle as an economist teaching economics and doing research at the Hunter Research Centre. That is correct. Thanks for having me. We come to macroeconomics on this show from a more heterodox position. And I'm wondering if you've had the experience of having to learn and then unlearn the orthodox economics. So it's a very good question, a question I often went over in my mind when I was actually doing my undergrad degree. During my study and, and in life in general, I always like to keep an open mind. I think it's very important to look at the facts and then make a judgment on what's correct and what's incorrect. Um, when I was, for example, going through macroeconomics, we learned a little bit about how the monetary system operates, so how banks operate and all these sorts of things. And I also, you know, at the same time started asking myself questions. Well, is the textbook representation, in other words, the orthodox representation, consistent with reality? Is it consistent with, for example, what I would like to call institutional practice? In other words, is it consistent with how central banks actually operate? And doing the degree and, and think, doing a lot of thinking and, and obviously a lot of reading, listening to what, for example, central bankers say, you realise there's a big inconsistency between the two. So there's actually a big inconsistency between what orthodox monetary economics and what a central banker would say. And that was actually quite frustrating because a lot of the textbooks out there, um, with all due respect to the authors, you could pretty much rip half of it out and not, not miss out on anything. We've had the same comments made by one of our very early interviews with a fellow called Duncan Wallace, who has said exactly the same thing and mentioned that there's a, an international movement of students to try and have economics curriculums changed to represent the real world. That's That's been your experience as well? Correct. So it's actually, it was very frustrating for me. I used to have, in good spirit, of course, I used to have quite open debates with the lecturers um, who were actually quite good. But it was quite frustrating from a student's point of view going through the course when you suddenly realise that all these things you're supposed to be learning and taken as fact or gospel are actually, in a lot of cases, basically just downright rubbish. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. So one of the things I've started to understand about economics is that it's great for producing tongue twisters. And one of my all-time favorite tongue twisters, because I think it's the one that will actually change your life once you understand it. And that's this idea that the Australian government is the sovereign monopoly issuer of a non-convertible fiat currency in a flexible exchange rate world. So the Australian government's the sovereign monopoly issuer of a non-convertible fiat currency in a flexible exchange rate world. (laughs) 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 What I'd really love to do right now with you, George, is unpack that sentence because between the two of us, I reckon we could change the lives of a lot of people. And so on this show, we've already looked at what it means for the Australian government to be a currency issuer. What we haven't done yet is put that story about the government being able to issue currency and never run out of that currency, we haven't quite put it into the picture of what the monetary system is. My understanding is that that sentence, if I'm right, that sentence describes the monetary system that we're in in Australia. Would that be right? That is correct. What we mean by a flexible exchange rate or a floating exchange rate just means that the Reserve Bank of Australia or the government doesn't set an exchange rate. It doesn't have any target. So the Australian dollar is actually floating. The value of the Australian dollar is determined by what we'd call market forces. In other words, the supply and demand of foreign exchange. If Australia was to run a fixed exchange rate, it might say, for example, target to have one Australian dollar equal one US dollar. And so any fluctuations in the exchange rate, the Reserve Bank of Australia will have to intervene to maintain that parity. What you're saying is that there are different kinds of exchange rate systems that you can be in 
and some of them are called fixed exchange rates and some of them are what, floating exchange rates. That's right. So if you look at the Aussie dollar, you know, every night on the six o'clock news, you'll see every day it's at a different value. So, you know, it could be at 60 cents today versus to the US dollar or 65 the next day. So it's, it's freely floating. So prior to 1983, when Keating floated the dollar, we were in a fixed exchange rate? Correct. So before Keating floated the dollar, which was one of the best things Mr. Keating ever did, we had a fixed exchange rate. So the Australian dollar was fixed to the US dollar. So that causes massive issues for countries especially if you run what's called a, a, a trade deficit or what economists call it a current account deficit. So in other words, where you're, where you're importing more than what you're exporting. And so that caused huge issues for Australian policymaking because generally speaking, Australia will run the trade deficit. So we'll generally import more than what we export. Pre-floating the dollar from Keating, back in past decades, Australia definitely had what economists would call balance of payment issues. If the Australian dollar was to depreciate, then the central bank would have to intervene and, and it would intervene by actually selling foreign currency to push up the Australian dollar and to keep that exchange rate fixed. But there's limits how, how long the central bank can do that for. Now, a central bank can actually create its own currency out of thin air. So can the RBA, for instance, can create Australian dollars out of thin air, can never run out of it, but it can't create foreign exchange out of thin air. So if the Australian dollar is constantly depreciating or constantly falling in value and the RBA is intervening to basically maintain the parity, whether it's one-to-one or whatever the case may be, then the central bank, it'll come to a point where it'll eventually run out of foreign exchange. And that causes massive issues because what has to happen is the, the government has to implement budget cuts to stop people from importing and to basically put the brakes on the economy. So if we're cutting demand in the economy, People will generally, they'll, they'll shop locally and they'll stop importing BMWs from overseas or Mercedes-Benzes and then they'll buy domestically so that'll reduce the imports. And then you'll have no pressure on the exchange rate because we'll have a trade balance of, say, for example, zero. That's very sort of disruptive to domestic government policy because they'll have to pump on the brakes and then once the trade balance is back to equilibrium, so zero, our imports will equal our exports, the government may increase their spending again. And so then people will import more and the cycle just starts all over again. And so you get this situation where it's sort of like stop-go, where the economy will heat up and we'll start running trade deficits, the exchange rate will uh, depreciate, the RBA in, in the Australian context will come in and they'll sell foreign currency. It'll get to a point where they'll start running low on their foreign currency reserves. If they're starting to run really, really low on foreign currency, the, the government will have to basically just put the brakes on spending to stop people from importing. And so you get this stop-go policy all the time. And that's what was actually happening in Australia. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Being on a fixed exchange rate means at some level someone's made a promise. They've said, we promise that the Australian dollar will be worth one American dollar. But the problem is that the market can say, oh, no, we actually think it's only worth 90 cents or 80 cents or something. Correct. And that can happen because we've done a whole lot of importing of stuff. If, so for example, if I'm importing and you guys are in the US and you, you'll be exporting to me, you'll obviously probably want to be paid in US dollars. If I go through the banks and I'm paying in Australian dollars, there's got to be some sort of conversion happening. And so my bank will generally try and access the foreign exchange market to gain US dollars in this context. So to pay you, the exporter, and that basically manipulates the exchange rate or causes what's called depreciation pressures. It causes the Australian dollar to depreciate. So that's just one case. There could be market speculation. There's a famous example of George Soros speculating against the British pound. And he made a massive amount of money on speculating against the pound. And at that time, the pound was fixed. So these things have happened, you know, again and again and again throughout history. And just by making sure that you float the currency, it sort of alleviates a lot of those sorts of issues. So being on a fixed exchange rate, that actually impacts what you're doing domestically and it impacts what the government can do domestically. Correct, correct. So to stop, you know, the Australia from running a trade deficit, the government can see, okay, people are importing more than what they're exporting. We have to, for example, cut our government spending to reduce demand in the economy. 
the government can stop spending in order to control the exporting, importing, in order to control the value of the currency. But then it still is going to want to spend sometimes because it's still going to want to build railways or a decent internet connection or something. So the government will always have reason to spend. And so what you're saying is that being on a fixed exchange rate affects the amount that the government can spend. So in fact, it can affect domestic policy in terms of what the government wants to provide into the society. Absolutely. So if it was to put the brakes on the economy to stop people from importing, then as a consequence of reducing their level of spending, unemployment will increase. So you get this sort of yo-yo effect of unemployment rising and falling with the trade balance. So yeah, it's it's very disruptive for domestic policy, um, having a fixed exchange rate. You know, first of all, we've learned about on this show that the amount of government spending can affect unemployment rates. But for economists, that's a no-brainer. It's just like, like a fact of life. And who knew that it was all about government spending? And now what you're describing also is that government spending can affect whether they're buying imported goods or not. Correct. Generally, what tends to happen is that the government has to react to what the households in Australia are doing. So if you look at the moment, for instance, in the COVID-19 outbreak, the government's just reacting to what households are doing. Households are really withdrawing their spending and the government needs to fill the gap in that what we call aggregate spending. And if you are starting a country and you're shopping around for a monetary system, I cannot imagine why you would want to go with a fixed exchange rate. Like, Does it have any advantages? So there are some short-term advantages. If we're starting Australia from scratch and we're thinking, okay, do we want a fixed or or a floating exchange rate? We may pursue the path of a fixed exchange rate because there's no what's called exchange rate risk. So if I was starting Australia and we adopted, say, a fixed exchange rate, overseas residents would say, okay, the government's actually promised that it'll run a fixed exchange rate. If I invest in Australia, there's no chance of me losing any money. Overseas banks will want to lend more in Australia because there's no chance of them actually losing money if the exchange rate was to change. So you get this boom effect and it it actually happened when countries adopted the euro because there was no exchange rate risk and all exchange rates were fixed to one another when they adopted the euro. You had massive construction booms in places like Spain. Um, You had massive bank lending in, in places like Spain from, say, for example, German and French banks because there's no exchange rate risk. But of course, on the flip side of that is that when things turn sour and they pull their money out of the country and the exchange rate depreciates. So you get this what's called a sudden stop. Um, That's what economists call it, when people start all of a sudden just moving their money out of the country and you get the exchange rate depreciating, you get the exact same issue I was talking about at the start, where the government will, to maintain that fixed exchange rate, will have to put the brakes on the economy. So there are some very, very short-term gains to be had by adopting a fixed exchange rate, but history tells us that the best strategy is to basically float the currency. And so from the point of view of the country that's getting foreign investors, if you issue your own currency, why would you care about foreign investors coming in with their money? <laughs> that's, that's actually a very, very good question. I guess in, in the, from the point of view of we live in a, we live in a globalised world, so generally we, we like to have open economies to export our goods and services to the rest of the world. You know, in my opinion is we strike a good balance between, yes, we should look after our own domestic set of objectives, but we live in a, a global village. And, and yes, technically the Australian government issues its own currency. Technically it doesn't need any foreign help, as it were. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Okay, so so that's um, George talking about the fixed exchange rate. And I'm not going to pretend that I've got my head right around this, Anne, because I do find it a bit confusing, especially when he starts talking about trade imbalances. But what we find is that people don't understand that we've decoupled, like your beautiful analogy before about the uh, the chook shed. We don't know that we're cage-free now. <laughs> yeah, they don't, they don't understand that if they go outside, metaphorically, the grass is greener. You can tell if someone is still suffering from what I call uh, fixed exchange rate trauma. And that is they will be worried that spending is going to devalue the dollar. And anytime somebody is worrying about the need to export more to fix our trade imbalance, you know that they've been in the cage too long. And in fact, as you come out of the COVID lockdown, right, 
If you are a caged chicken, you will have what I call the export-led recovery mindset. So you will be squawking away about how to get out of this economic mess we're in. We need an export-led recovery. And in fact, you'll probably have the mindset of somebody like Neville Power. Who's, who's Neville Power? So Neville Power is the chair of Morrison's National COVID-19 Coordination Commission. Is he the gas guy? He's the gas guy. Uh, yeah, rightio. <laughs> so good old Nev, he's going to lead us out of our COVID-19 problems by an export-led recovery. And of course, one of the things that he wants to start selling like mad so that we can get money to pay the debt is... Let me guess, gas. Gas. I always get amazed by people's names and their connection to the, the industry. And I'm reading this book by uh, Andrew Lee, the, the Labor Minister. Uh, he wrote a book all about political luck, and it draws all these correlations between people's circumstances, including their names and their occupations. So, so it needn't necessarily be such a coincidence that someone with the name Power ends up dealing with <laughs> some power. <laughs> I hadn't even made that connection. Of it happens all the time. Right. You, you see people with these surnames ending up in these jobs that of their surnames. Like Dr. Blood or Doctor, something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had I had a little operation uh, years ago uh, and the doctor was Dr. Love. Dr. Love. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Dr. Love gave me the snip. That's great. And he did bring no, more love into no. the world. Well, you know, good old Neville, if you wanted to start selling off gas as fast as you could, you'd probably do things like you might want to start fast-tracking coal mines in Queensland. And you might want to let AGL build a gas import terminal in the wetland sanctuary of Western Port Bay, right here in Victoria. And get rid of all of that uh, nasty red tape. All that green tape and that red tape. Because that, that just holds everything in. Yep. You, know? yeah. you might also want to end fracking moratoriums in New South Wales and Victoria. So if the ground starts shaking under you, <laughs> Kevin, you'll know Neville Powers at work. And you wouldn't believe, Kevin, how much he's getting paid to run around pushing that line at the moment. How much is Mr Power being paid to push this gas-fired recovery? I think they think he's going to take about six months to do it. So over the six months, he'll be getting 260000 which Ebony Bennett from the Australia Institute did the maths, and she figured out that that's about $44,000 a month. So he will be getting more in a month than what someone on a minimum wage would earn in a year. That's that's just that's a really cushy government paycheck for a, a fossil fuel vested interest, really, isn't it? I mean, there are all these fantastic ideas for a, a renewable-led recovery. There's so much that could be done in that area. And where does this government go? Fossil fuels, gas. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au. Who's our guest this week? Our guest is George Pantelopoulos. Excellent. I'm just wondering if you yourself have a sense that people are starting to get interested in macroeconomics. I think it was even before the COVID-19 outbreak, people were starting to get interested in macroeconomics and, and different schools of thought, I guess, to, to economics. I think people are questioning what they've been told for decades, especially from political leaders. If you listen to the way they speak, it's as if we're still on, you know, like a gold standard. So I think people are starting to question, is is this the way that, you know, the best way we can actually handle not only the domestic economy, but the international economy? Yeah, I, th- I think there's definitely been a sort of a change. I was actually listening to a really good podcast, which is about the Whitlam era, and it's called The 11th. I don't know if either of you have heard of it. They were describing the loans affair. So the loans affair was when the Minister for Energy... Rex Connor. Yes, he was running around trying to find a a loan in order to build $4 billion worth of infrastructure projects. For Mr Kemlani. Oh, my God. Do you remember that at all? Yeah, so the Kemlani affair. I'll give a brief background to the listeners of this episode. It's the Whitlam government. You've got Rex Connor, who's the Minister for Mining and Energy, uh, and he can foresee a mining boom that's going to take place through the north of Australia. So he wants to institute rail and port, nationally owned rail and port infrastructure, to capitalise in the national interest. He is having trouble, as the Whitlam government was through the whole uh, this whole period with supply, because the Conservatives were just dead set to destroy the Whitlam government, and they blocked them at every turn. 
So Rex Connor is looking for an alternative way to raise funds for this massive project and he engages the services of a Pakistani fellow called uh, Mr Kemlani. Now after a while the Conservatives put so much pressure on Whitlam that he tells Rex Connor to stop engaging with Kemlani, that this is not the way things are done because the Conservatives are like hammering him like all hell. He agrees to stop but he doesn't. So the only thing he did was he failed to stop seeking an alternative way to fund this major infrastructure project. There was pressure coming from all directions and Whitlam had to sack Rex Connor and replaced him with Paul Keating, who was there in the last six weeks of the Whitlam government. No way. (laughs) Now that I know a little bit about the monetary systems, I look at that little blip of history a little bit differently now because I'm thinking potentially he had the option, right, to not have to run around finding a loan, even though they were on a fixed exchange back then. I mean, how would you look at that little bit of history now? Yeah, so there's a couple of finer points to consider. So generally what happens, even today, the Australian government has Treasury and it has the central bank. Treasury keeps an account at the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia. All that has to happen is that for the government to spend out of thin air, the Reserve Bank has to credit the Treasury account. In other words, it just has to sit on a keyboard and put some numbers into an account. Because of the political process, and we don't really trust the political process, and we don't really trust politicians, we limit the ability of the RBA to do that. So what happens is that the Treasury, through what's called the Australian Office of Financial Management, AOFM, so it sells bonds to primary dealers, which is actually very important to do. Without that, the, the banking system would actually fail. That was applicable even back then during the Kemlani affair. The other detail is that back then, the Australian government used to sell bonds not in Australian dollars, but a lot of it was in pounds and US dollars. So if you can imagine you're selling bonds, in other words, the government's creating an obligation for itself to repay the holder of the bonds, not in Australian dollars, but in US dollars or British pounds, that means that the government has to make sure it has enough pounds in the coffers to actually pay you back. So that was sort of like a double whammy. They were running a fixed exchange rate and selling debt in foreign currency. The Australian government's actually um, quite smart now. They don't sell any public debt in foreign currencies. It's all in Australian dollars. So back then, if they had known what we know, they could have actually done some deficit spending without running around trying to get these loans and then just issued bonds in Australian dollars. But you've got to remember that they were running a fixed exchange rate. So if they were to do a bunch of spending, I think around the Whitlam area, Australia was running um, trade deficit. So they would run into the same issue where if they were doing a bunch of infrastructure spending, it would boost demand in the economy, people would import more, and they'd have the same issue as what I was talking about at the start. So it was, it was sort of like a, a catch-22. You mentioned this idea of not trusting the government. And so I'm just wondering what your sense of it is in terms of the institutions or in terms of the current practice. Do we need some safeguards in place around currency issuance? Because I noticed, for example, going back to the Whitlam era loans affair, like there was this thing called the Loan Council, and that still exists. I'm assuming they might be one of those safeguards. And so I'm just wondering if you have a, an opinion about that. Uh, my opinion would be that because of the political process and because of people's understanding of economics, even if, for example, we were, we were to get rid of you know, these sorts of barriers in terms of the RBA can credit Treasury's account, generally speaking, a lot of, most of the population, they, they make the analogy that the government's budget, in quotation marks, is that of a household. So politicians are actually very, very worried and and very, very uh, mindful of, again, quote unquote, excessive spending because they're, they're scared that they'll be punished at the ballot box. My opinion would be that it depends on the context. So if we, for example, had basically full employment, so when I say full employment, if you look at sort of the post World War II era where we had an unemployment rate of, it was about 2%. And it fluctuated between about 2 and 2.5%, something like that. That's what you'd probably call full employment. So if we had a case of full employment, it would be probably a good idea um, to have some sort of process um, to stop overt monetary financing or, or, or something like this. Um, because it becomes a very easy way out for politicians to, you know, just before an election to promise I'm going to do X, Y, Z to get amount of votes. That was happening in the late 60s, wasn't it? I think there was a little bit of an inflationary pressure around election time. 
once we get to a point where we're running full employment, in my opinion, we have to have some sort of some sort of system in place to A, maintain price stability, B, maintain full employment. But of course, at the same time, if you just keep on spending, then that will create an inflationary process. If all the sort of what we call real resources, the labor market's running at full capacity is, is basically just used up. And once inflation actually, that's why central banks are extremely strict on inflation, because once an inflationary process starts, it's very, very difficult to rectify in, in some cases. So um, if we have a lot of sort of idle resources, and what I mean by that is, you know, high unemployment like we do now, then yeah, um, for sure, OMF, 100% all the way. Can you just explain OMF for us? Yeah, so OMF's um, called Overt Monetary Financing. So a lot of people in the media would call it printing money, which is extremely misleading. I hate using the term printing money. Automatically, it just brings back connotations of people walking around with wheelbarrows of money. But all um, overt monetary financing means is that because Treasury has an account, the central bank at the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Reserve Bank of Australia just credits Treasury's accounts. That basically just gives the government money and they can spend it. So all that's that's what's meant by overt monetary financing. So even though we don't really trust the political process in terms of we don't sort of allow overt monetary financing or the RBA to credit the Treasury account um, and the government can spend basically out of thin air, that the government's actually, well, the policymakers are smart enough to not sell any bonds in, in foreign currencies. It's all in Australian dollars. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. Sui Zhen, another uh, really good local artist. That's uh, Sui Zhen, that's S-U-I-Z-H-E-N, with her song A Perfect Place. I've seen Sui Zhen play live a couple of times. Mm-hmm. If you've ever known uh, an Italian family, they've got chooks at the back, and their chooks mm-hmm. are fed like they are the, the most important members of the family because mm. good eggs means good pasta, and that's the basis <laughs> for everything. So... To continue the analogy, uh-huh. the doors are open. If the chooks knew that they could go outside, they could forage around, eat worms, grass, all this great stuff and make better eggs, mm-hmm. the world would be a better place. It would be a better place. What we're learning here is that people have got this mindset that you need fiscal restraint, that you can't wander away too far, that it's dangerous, mm-hmm. that everything's going to go wrong. The sky is going to fall on you. That's where we have this Office of Financial Management. Their specific task, the Office of Financial Management, is to coordinate full funding of the government budget. FF, they're full funding the deficit. So this is like a self-imposed method of accountability whereby the government says that if we spend so much uh, into the economy, we're going to fund that through either collecting taxation Mm -hmm. or we're going to sell debt, which is to say sell government bonds, to match government spending and balance the books. That's their that's their purpose. But the question that we always need to ask is, what happens if they didn't? What would happen if they didn't do that? It's a really interesting question, that one. I did manage to put that question to Robert Nickel, ah. who is the CEO of the AOFM. You had a bit of a chat with Robert Nickel. I phoned him the other day because I was all excited about the AOFM because I just discovered them. He wasn't willing to be um, recorded, so I don't want to put words in his mouth. He gave me a good 40 minutes of his time, which was really lovely. I asked him what would happen if nobody bought the Australian bonds. So <laughs> if nobody bought the bonds that they're issuing, would that mean that the government couldn't spend? Essentially, his answer was that they will always be sold. So it's never going to be a problem. It's not something that he's ever sounds like he's ever considered. But if we look at it from a macroeconomic perspective, since the government is the currency issuer, it can always pay its bills. Not issuing bonds is definitely an option, but it has all these other repercussions if you don't do that. And one of the big impacts it would have is that your superannuation funds and many of your hedge funds and your other funds, they would all be starved of risk-free or low-risk 
securities. And that would really put a lot of sand in the tank of the financial industry. That doesn't mean that it's funding government spending. And I've heard it described that government bonds, it's, it's like corporate welfare, where well, corporations are guaranteed a secure return and that then underpins their business. Now, that, that was touched on by Bill Mitchell when he was talking about the surpluses run by Costello during the Howard years. Do you recall the review of the Commonwealth Government Securities Market of 2002? No, I don't, but I did hear Bill Mitchell talking about it. <laughs> Where all the uh, corporates went in there and went, we want our bonds. Well, yeah, because it's kind of a very revealing uh, economic episode. If government bonds are supposed to cover the shortfall of government spending, and then you have a government like the Howard Costello government that ran surpluses, meaning that they don't need to sell bonds to cover the so-called shortfall of government spending. Well, the government should, in that case, you would say, cease issuing bonds. Cease issuing debt. We don't need to be in debt because we've got a surplus. Running a surplus so there's no debt, so therefore no bonds. And so this was the discussion being had, and the corporations all said, no, 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 you've got to keep issuing bonds. And they're going, well, if it's only there to cover debt, why? And they said, well, we need them. That's very revealing. That tells you that the true significance of bonds, not that they fund government debt, but that they fund corporate stability through having this uh, stable interest rate. Government sells bonds so-called to, to raise revenue, to so-called fund their, mm. um, uh, their government spending. But they've got to pay the bonds back and they've got to pay interest on the bonds. Where does that money come from? Well, that comes from the, uh, the RBA. Mm -hmm. And they say, but you can't mm -hmm. just print money. But they do already. They have been for years. So you get this constant criticism. Oh, you need to have constraints. We need to have uh, uh, limits and parameters on, on government spending. It's a fallacy. That's exactly what Robert Nichols said to me. I was asking him, like, can't the RBA just issue the money that the government needs? And he, he said, well, you know, what would be the limit on government spending? That is somewhat of a legitimate concern. Like I think that's the whole reason for how, and I'm not quite sure yet, like we've still got to figure this out. There's been this whole decades-long debate around what they call the independence of the central bank because that's the mechanism, that's the till with the never-ending money supply just popping out of it. This is the purpose of the, um, the Office of Financial Management. It's an artificial constraint on government spending. It's something to say... It's not an open checkbook. You can't just keep on buying whatever you want. It feels to me that it's artificial at two levels. One is that the debt's not this debt in the way that households have debt. So there's that whole kind of story. And it's also artificial in the sense that they would never not fund the government, right? They would never not do it. Which is exactly what they're doing right now with JobSeeker and JobKeeper, which is why we're, we're, we're raving about it, because you know that they can do it because they are doing it. You know, people say you, mm -hmm. can't, you can't just print money and create currency. That's what we're doing right now. So that's yeah. that's how the system operates. Yeah. So so when somebody like um, Robert says to me, oh, well, you know, we've got to have constraints around government, and then I say, well, does that mean that you see your role there at the Australian Office of Financial Management as sort of like the watchdog making sure that the government doesn't, you know, do anything it shouldn't? He said, we are the face of government to the financial markets. I don't know. I didn't get the feeling that he even f was standing there with a big whip. <laughs> making sure that the government doesn't do what they shouldn't do. So it's a very kind of odd area. And I'd really like to talk to someone who understands how these institutions got created and, you know, how they really see themselves and how the government sees them. I think they believe 100% that what they're doing is based in fact, because I had a very interesting fellow with a chap from the ATO one night at a pub. I just happened to be sitting next to him watching a band and then found that he worked for the ATO. This is a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And... I asked him some very direct questions. I said, does taxation fund government spending? And he said emphatically, absolutely yes. Government spends from taxation. Wow. And I went, right. And then I had a 20-minute conversation with him. Now, I was very early in my economic understanding, but after 20 minutes of speaking to him with some basic information that I'd learned through MMT, he began to question his whole his whole basis of his career. Yeah, there he was thinking he was pursuing those naughty, unpaying taxpayers, and you completely um, upturned that. I don't know. Uh, I, I have no doubt that these people that work in Treasury and the ATO and the Australian Office of Financial Management believe what they're doing is valid. 
but they only understand the, the part of the machine that they're working in. It is really complex. And I think one of the points to make too is that it's not that we're saying you don't need to tax as well. It's actually vital to have taxation as well, not least for redistribution so you don't get these wealth and income inequalities. Yeah, but if, but if we're going to tax, let's be honest about it. Rather than running this smokescreen, this bluff, I don't know, is it a lie? It's for different reasons that we, we tax people, and we can have a, a show about that. But taxation does not fund government spending. No, and neither does the bond issuing. So we're talking about federal government all the time, remember? So state governments, they're like us. They do have to worry yeah. about their budgets. But the Australian federal government can fund as long as there's the resources there. It has no fiscal constraint, has no financial constraint. It can never become insolvent. It can never not pay its back its debt. And to not fund where we could be, that's the, that's the part that really gets me going. It's like, think about that we've now had decades of not having our universities funded properly, not having our TAFEs funded properly. I've never understood why you'd try and privatise your health system. And so we're going to continue our conversation with George Pantelopoulos. We're having a look at the fixed exchange rate that Australia used to have and we're exploring how it has an unnecessary influence on the current economic mindset. So if we come back to my all-time favourite tongue twister of economics, which is that the Australian government is the sovereign monopoly issuer of a non-convertible fiat currency in a flexible exchange rate world, we've pretty much covered what this flexible exchange rate world is. We're in this lovely floaty place now. I feel like I'm in one of those isolation tanks now. I'm just floating around on my flexible exchange rate. We haven't really looked at the non-convertible part. What's the importance of the fact that it's non-convertible? If you look prior to the First World War and in the interwar years, money was backed by gold. It was backed by a finite commodity. And so can you imagine now, for example, the Australian government's introduced JobKeeper, they would have to make sure that in the, in the vaults of the Reserve Bank of Australia, they would have to make sure that there was enough gold to back up that spending. So back when money was backed by gold, if I had, for example, a $5 note or a, or a $10 note or a $20 note, I could actually go to the central bank and convert that $20 note for some gold. Now, if I get that $20 and go to the bank, right, they'll just give me either a $20 note back or they'll give me two $10 notes or four $5 notes. It's not convertible into, a, into any sort of commodity. That's what it's meant by it's non-convertible. So if I have a $20 note in my pocket, all that really is, is that it's a government IOU. In other words, it's basically saying that the government owes me $20. Technically, anyone can issue an IOU. I could just write on a bit of paper and say IOU and give it, you know, give it to you and say, here's an IOU. The problem is that, you know, 99.9% .9 of people on the planet wouldn't accept it from me. It'd be worthless. The government's the only one issuing those non-convertible IOUs. The reason that we want those, those government IOUs is because we extinguish our liabilities in that currency. So I'll extinguish my taxes in Australian dollars. So we live in a monetary system where the banks or the government, no one's promising to give you any gold for your 20 bucks. And we're also not promising any external foreign player that we're going to convert our dollar into any value of their dollar. So there's these two non-promises that we're making in this idea of a monetary system. So all those constraints of, of having what's called the gold standard have been circumvented. All the constraints of having a fixed exchange rate have been circumvented. So I like to look at things in, in sort of the historical context and you, you can see that even though we're sort of what would people would call the neoliberal era, a lot of those past constraints have been effectively circumvented. George, I think we've gotten to the bottom of that sentence. Now, anyone who ever listens to this show knows that the Australian government is the sovereign monopoly issue of a non-convertible fiat currency in a flexible exchange rate world, and they're loving it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've made talking about macroeconomics very enjoyable, George. So thanks very much for coming along today. Indeed. Thanks very much, George, for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been great. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back with Anne and Kev on 3CR. And I'm Martin Watts, Professor of Economics at Newcastle University. You know, you know one of the things I was thinking about, this is Anne's theory of, of fixed exchange rates. In the days of being on a fixed exchange, when you did seriously have to worry about how many reserves you had 
because you were reserve constrained and you had to worry about your imports and your exports and all of that. And so I think what happened was that they learned a few tricks back then. They learned how to control the price of the dollar. So you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? So what they've done is they've continued with their monetary policy tricks, but now they're applying them in a slightly different way. So now they're targeting like interest rates using bonds. So I just feel like they're still in that sort of mindset that monetary policy is the king policy. Monetary policy is the way that you drive the engine of the economy. Well, certainly there's lots of resistance from conservative governments to engaging in fiscal policy because they want the engine of the economy to be from the private sector and they want the government to get out of there and be minimalistic, which just doesn't work in current circumstances. The government has to come to the rescue. So it's like there's this grand battle between monetary policy and fiscal policy. I think you could say that progressives want to see more fiscal policy, which is to say more government spending, more government involvement in the economy. And conservatives are more interested in monetary policy, which is the settings around interest rates uh, for people to borrow in the private sector. But you'd only say that as a very broad definition. There's lots of overlap. Yeah. And you wouldn't strictly say monetary policy is only about the private sector. Like you could look at things like having a nationalised banking system or something like that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, we just heard the release of the unemployment figures. We're looking at a base unemployment rate. I think it was around 7%, over 7 and 7.2. But they also said that there was like another half a million people that had just given up, so they're not included in the figures. And then you've got to take it all the JobKeeper people. Now, not everybody on JobKeeper is without a job, but a lot of them have had their hours reduced and some of them are out of work. So you need to add all those ones in. That's a more accurate figure, which puts it way beyond 10%. So we're looking at about 25%, 25% underemployment and unemployment at the moment. And we're supposed to get to September and suddenly snap back. It ain't going to happen. <laughs> no, no. Which is not to say we don't have to worry about it too much because we understand that there is fiscal capacity for the government to address this situation. How about the perfect time to introduce a job guarantee, which the government could afford to employ every last one of those three point whatever million people and we could all be doing stuff that we really value, like environmental restoration, like um, enhancing our urban areas. Bushfire recovery, fast rail. There's no shortage of things to do. There's just a shortage of political will. You really hope that people in senior political positions have a decent fundamental understanding of how the economy works. I was listening to Malcolm Turnbull speaking to uh, Big Z on 3RRR the other day. He was talking about... You don't want the country to run up too much debt. You need to live within your means. And he sounded like he actually really believed it. So I don't I don't know. I honestly don't know whether people like our prime ministers and some of our senior political figures actually do know what they're talking about or whether they're just really good at spin and, let's face it, lying. You know, speaking of political spin... Josh Frydenberg explaining about how he, he lost $60 billion down the back of the couch. And here's the spin that he did. He said, well, you know, if this was the ALP, they would have said they're spending $70 million and then actually spent $130 billion. But that's really interesting to me because I feel like the ALP and maybe the left in general, they've still got this mentality where they're still cringing because they believe that back in the 70s they screwed up the economy. They've still got a sore point about not being good economic managers. Do you know what that sore point is, Anne? The sore point is called the Murdoch press. <laughs> they know full well that if they say anything which is economically progressive or challenging to the orthodox, the Murdoch press will chew them up and spit them out and just give them complete hell. Mm. So they, they have to toe this orthodox line. It was Rupert Murdoch who was controlling the 1972 election when Gough Whitlam won. He controlled the 1975 election when Gough Whitlam lost. And he has wielded his media power mm. to make or break governments ever since. 
the Murdoch press loves to run this narrative of how Labor are terrible financial managers and you need a safe set of hands, which is the coalition or the Liberal Party. All the facts tell you the opposite. There was a really interesting time in political history, it would have been about five or six years ago, where both Labor and Liberal, or the coalition, had been in office for exactly the same amount of time since 1972. They'd both been in power for 22 and something years. And they compared the stats between the two parties. And the economy was to the tune of 50 or $60 billion better off under Labor than it was under Liberal. All the hard information tells you that Labor have been better economic managers than Liberal. You'll never hear that because Murdoch will just never give that any airtime. Well, thank goodness for independent radio, Kevin, 3CR Community Radio. That was Sui Zhen from her album Losing Linda, a song called The Mountain Song. While you're on the 3CR website, uh, head over to the Donate button and see if you can't throw a few bucks our way for the June Station Appeal. Also, if you'd like to contact the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, you can find them at auwu.org.au. Just check them up on the uh, the website there. And if you've got any feedback for the show, uh, send us uh, an email at radiommt at gmail.com. We'd love to hear back from you because we've got no idea how we're being perceived out there. So that's it for this week. Thanks very much, Anne, yet again. Thank you, Kevin. And we'll see you soon. See you then. listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. We thank all our guests and I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. The pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, I insist. The pleasure was mine. Well, it wasn't all yours. I mean, I had a fair degree of pleasure on this show. It was very pleasurable for me. Oh, no, Kevin, I was highly pleasured. You looked like you are having fun and it looked very pleasing to you, but I'm just wondering whether I had more fun than you did. I had a lot of fun. It was very pleasurable. I have to say it was amazing.